Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast. Listen in as your host, Jimmy Atkinson, invites industry leaders to share their best OZ insights and investment strategies. From market updates to fund launches, policy news, tax mitigation strategies, and more, we cover it all here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm Jimmy Atkinson. Joining the show today are Noel St. Clair Lentz and Doug Schaefer from Elevate Impact Capital. Noel is co-founder and CEO, and Doug is co-founder and board chairman at Elevate. Noel, Doug, welcome, and thanks for coming on the show today. Great to see you both. Hey, Jimmy. Nice to, thanks for having us. Absolutely. Great to have both of you here with us today to talk about Elevate and the work that you're doing in Opportunity Zones. And for our listeners and viewers out there today, today's show is going to focus on community impact-oriented Opportunity Zone investing and hopefully offer a counter-narrative to some of the negative publicity that the Opportunity Zones policy has received since its inception. Uh, A little bit about our group that we're speaking with today, Elevate Impact Capital is a subsidiary of Wood Forest Financial Group. And this group has been an investor that leveraged CRA tax credits within the Opportunity Zones program back in 2020 and was recognized by Forbes and the Sorensen Impact Center as one of the Forbes OZ20 top Opportunity Zone catalysts that year. They have also recently won a Global Innovation Award from BAI. So Noel, I'm gonna turn to you first here to start us off. What else can you tell me and my listeners about Elevate Impact Capital? What is it exactly? And why was it formed? Sure. Thank you, Jimmy. Um, so we're excited to launch Elevate Impact Capital, our new impact investing subsidiary. And the first question we often get is, what does Elevate mean? So the word Elevate is really a mashup of different words that come out of our mission and vision. We seek to elevate communities, alleviate poverty, and activate entrepreneurial ecosystems through innovative capital solutions. And so Opportunity Zones has definitely been one of those tools. And the first fund Elevate will manage will be an Opportunity Zone fund. But we intend for Elevate to manage funds across asset classes, building off of the expertise we have had uh, in CRA investments. Fantastic. I want to talk more about... uh... CRA and your current fund that you're raising OZ equity for a little bit later in the program today. Anything else you want to uh, expand on with regards to the group's mission and vision? Yeah, so Alavi really attempts to be a leader in impact investing by working with communities to understand their vision for themselves and deploying innovative capital tools to help them realize uh, that untapped potential. So we're interested in investing in populations and communities that for too long have suffered disinvestment. Um, And our team is a diverse team. We're a female-led firm with a diverse management team. And we truly believe that diversity of perspectives leads to better outcomes. So we are investing for an impact, but that often leads to quite lucrative financial returns um, because we are helping these communities access resources that just for too long has gone as a market gap. Right. And uh, the Opportunity Zone tax incentive often aligns very well with impact investing. Uh, Doug, we're going to get to you in a minute, but another question here for for Noel. Just speaking about your experience so far 
with Opportunity Zones. What, what has that experience been and, and how do you plan to scale that work going forward? Yeah, so we were involved in the Opportunity Zone program early on. Um, we had a large capital gain event in 2019 and our CRA investment group, um, Doug and myself and others got together with our tax director to think about how could we use the Opportunity Zone program to really scale our CRA investments? So we were the seed investor in a few multi-investor, multi-asset Opportunity Zone funds having deep impacts in communities across our 17-state footprint. But we also created a proprietary fund where we were the sole investor. It was a $22 million fund. Um, and that fund has invested in 10 commercial real estate projects across our 17-state footprint. But we looked at over 250 projects. So we were um, really looking for, one, does it pencil in a way that will give us the financial return we're looking for? But two, a big gating, cri gating criteria for us was, does it meet the Opportunity Zone impact reporting framework? And this is something put together by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, the U.S. Impact Investing Alliance, and the Beck Center at Georgetown. And so we used this framework to talk to developers at the very start about things like community engagement, social equity, transparency, how are their projects going to meet needs in a community and help the community realize its vision for itself all the way through an intentional exit strategy. So long after we exit, after the 10-year compliance period, we wanted to ensure that the benefits remain in that community. And so in adopting that framework and looking at over 250 projects, we realized that there's a lot more demand than we were able to meet with our first fund. Um, so we're excited that Alivate now gives us the flexibility to not just manage our own balance sheet capital, but to bring in capital from other CRA-motivated banks, high net worth individuals, institutional investors, to deploy this type of innovative capital um, in communities across the nation. Terrific. Uh, you mentioned the impact reporting framework that was developed um, in part by the Beck Center at Georgetown University. I, I had a, a representative from the Beck Center on this podcast uh, a couple of years back. I'll make sure I link to that old podcast episode in the show notes for today's episode. If anybody wants to uh, follow that and and learn a little bit more about that impact reporting framework. But, it, you know, Noel, in, in your last response, you, you mentioned the Community Reinvestment Act, CRA credits several times. Doug, I want to bring you in now as our CRA expert, so to speak, for today's episode. What can you tell? I know, I know in the banking world um, and, and with, with certain fund managers, uh, they're very well versed in CRA credits and how they can be layered into a, a capital stack to complete projects um, in opportunity zones and, and, and also non-opportunity zone developments. But can you tell our viewers and listeners who may be unfamiliar with CRA, what is the Community Reinvestment Act exactly? I'm happy to be a resource on CRA. It's not something I expected I would ever be a part of, but uh, my career led me uh, somewhat late in my career into CRA. And it's it's a really a remarkable tool for communities. And it's been around since the 70s. And I think we just celebrated 40 years not too long ago. It feels, feels like it was shorter. But it really, for banks that offer FDIC insurance, every bank is affirmatively obligated uh, to meet the needs of the communities they serve, including those of low and moderate income. And that's really the regulation that was signed into law in the 70s, updated in 96. And the regulators are still trying to poke at modernizing it to 
today. Um, the OCC came out with some rules that, that have been rescinded and the Fed just recently uh, closed out a notice of proposed rulemaking comment period. So I, I, we're anxious to see what happens, but banks meet the needs of the community through the retail products, loans offered through branches, and as well as community development, lending and investments. And so what is great as a tool is those loans and investments that go into communities often are catalytic in what they do. Uh, and there's a variety of tools out there uh, to invest in from mortgage, the plain vanilla mortgage-backed securities that have mortgages that are predominantly or majority low and moderate income individuals, or low and moderate income areas. Uh, or you can do more innovative and complex things that you get qualitative credit for, such as LIHTC, uh, low income housing tax credits, new market tax credits. In, in our institution's case, we are privately held and that tax credit investing didn't really help us out uh, with our ownership base. But Opportunity Zones did, as Noel talked about before. Uh, it's just a tremendous tool that we've seen. And you mentioned the capital stack, and that's what makes these things innovative and complex. So we we love the fact that we were the first mover uh, in, in this proprietary fund uh, to adopt the OZ metrics, but we, we see it as being something that actually the regulators upheld. Uh, the OCC published an e-zine article uh, in, was it 2021, holding our fund out as an example of how uh, these things can be done in a measurable, impactful way. So without going into the gory details of how CRA is, is kind of an art form, as well as an obligation, a lot of banks don't use the tool as well as they could, meaning there's tools like Opportunity Zones Fund, Opportunity Zones that can be used in the way we're using them, but we don't see many people doing it. I, I think you, you asked me a question prior to this about what are, why aren't banks doing it? I, we, for the life of us, we don't know, um, but we're happy to have them be investors in, in our fund. And we, we have some that are interested. Uh, I won't mention another bank, but when I was with them yesterday, they, they just don't have the capacity, it seems, to, to consider these except as kind of more of an esoteric thing. Uh, so there are a few banks that will set up a fund when a, a client has a capital gain, but they're not viewing it yet as a good investment that long-term patient returns are there for the right investor set. So we, we can talk more about that, but I'm sorry to ramble a little bit on the CRA side. I don't know if I made it easier to understand for the uninitiated, uh, but it really is a strong tool. Uh, it's the only rating that's made public by the regulators for a bank. So there is a, there's a lot of pressure to do it right. Uh, you have to at least be satisfactory in order to continue to grow your bank, uh, do mergers and acquisitions, open branches, et cetera. So a lot of, a lot of banks are under the pressure to ensure they get satisfactory. There's a few uh, that really strive to be outstanding. And we're one of those institutions that's rated outstanding. And we, we look to keep doing innovative things like this to ensure we always are outstanding. So um, I don't want to turn this into a CRA discussion, but Noel knows I could talk at length about it. So I will 
stop there unless I didn't give you a no, sufficient that's, answer. That, 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 that's great, Doug. Appreciate that answer and your insights there. I, I do want to revisit, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> excuse me. I do want to revisit uh, one point you made about more banks, more large institutional Wall Street banks in particular, not doing more with opportunity zones. I want to revisit that <clears throat> a little bit later in the episode today. One follow-up question about CRA credits, though. I, if, if I understand correctly, I think um, there were some new rules that came out within the last year or two that allow for banks to receive CRA credits if they if they make an investment into a QOF or if they start up a QOF. Can you can you walk us through what that means exactly? Do I have that right? Yeah, and I'm going to pass the baton over to Noelle at some point sure. uh, because she's really been the one uh, since she joined us to get us invested in these through what's called the public welfare investment. In in our case being regulated by the OCC, it falls under part 24. So you, you have limited capital that you can apply to this. And you can either go, depending on your status, <laughs> what you rated, you can either come in uh, for pre-approval or after the fact notice. We always try to go in before uh, to get to make sure that the structure, it qualifies also under public welfare investing as well as CRA, but there's, there are some nuanced differences there. So, Noelle, I know you've most recently had uh, the Q&A uh, process through getting us approved. Any, any additional color you want to add to this? Yeah, I do think there's a lot more clarity from the CRA regulators when it comes to opportunity zones. The OCC put out a fact sheet in, I believe, late 2022 or early 2021 that talks about how they think about Opportunity Zones and CRA. Um, I will say that when the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was passed and the Opportunity Zone program was introduced, um, governors were able to designate Opportunity Zones in their own state. So even though the intention was for capital to flow to low and moderate income areas, there are a few outlier Opportunity Zones that fit in more affluent areas. Um, so for a CRA-motivated investor or for Alivate uh, investing on behalf of CRA-motivated investors, we would not consider one of those opportunity zones. So I mentioned our impact reporting framework earlier. Um, that's really the, the how in terms of our impact, but the CRA looks at the what and where. So CRA is very geographically focused. And so an opportunity zone won't make an investment CRA eligible. It also needs to be serving a low and moderate income area and or low and moderate income people, which is most of Opportunity Zones, but not all of them as they stand right now. No, very good. Thanks for clarifying there. Uh, Doug, I want to turn back to you and, and get uh, some more information on the National Opportunity Zone Commercial Real Estate Fund that Alivate has set up. What, what can you tell us about that fund how many projects will be in it? Where will it be located? And how much equity are you raising for it? I feel like I'm stealing Noelle's uh, question. Uh, she's, she's through the success of what we did with our proprietary fund, uh, we use that as a launch pad to create Elevate under our, our holding company. And the intention was, as she talked about, where we looked at 250 projects there were, and we were able to invest in 10, there's just so many more out there. And those were 250 projects in our 17 state footprint. So being able to take it national is, there's just a, 
a load of other projects that are out there. We are actively hearing about them. We look forward to hearing more. Any of your listeners that want to bring us in, we're happy to talk about it. Uh, we're happy to talk to potential investors as well. But we plan to seed the first fund with $25 million of our own gain, and we are looking to raise an additional seventy-five. We are happy to talk to banks. We are happy to talk to pension funds, any investor. We think it's a great investment on its own terms uh, without the OZ impact. But as Noel just highlighted, we, we are intentionally going to ensure that that impact is measured and delivered. And so, Noel, I, I feel like I'm so used to you answering that question. Uh, I don't want to go too long without tossing it back to you. What, please add. No, I think that was great. <laughs> Nothing else to add there, Noel. Anything else about the the fund that you're raising? How about how how many? Um, it's 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 this one is a real estate focused fund. What types of properties are you developing, and and how many uh, projects are in the pipeline? Maybe you can answer a couple of those questions. Yes. Yeah, so as Doug mentioned, this fund is really building off of the model we created with the first fund where we were a sole investor. We invested $22 million and the average project size in that fund was somewhere between one and $3 million. Since this will be a $100 million fund and looking at projects nationally, our, our investment size will be somewhere between five to $15 million on average, I would say. Um, and the project types are pretty diverse. Again, we're trying to meet needs that are unique to each community. So in our first fund, we were proud to invest in a the St. James Hotel at the foot of the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama. It had been vacant for decades, and civil rights tourism is growing, but the community of Selma didn't benefit from any of the ripple effects of that tourism because there was nowhere for people to stay. So they would cross the bridge and remember all the brave people who marched in the civil rights movement, but then drive an hour back to Montgomery and benefit the Montgomery economy. So the St. James Hotel was one of the investments in our first fund. And now we know of three other developments happening in downtown Selma that's played with a lot of vacancy and blight and poverty. Um, in Philadelphia, which is uh, dug in my own hometown, we invested in a project that brought mixed income housing, a grocery store, a federally qualified healthcare center, and a bank branch to a community that was lacking all of those things. It was a medically underserved food desert, banking desert in need of mixed income housing. Some communities, the need is purely affordable housing, but in some communities, they need that mix uh, to diversify the tax base. So it's a lot of getting to understand which project will be that catalyst to foster neighborhood revitalization. And these are complicated capital stacks. So most of them have some sort of local city, state, or federal subsidy, or new market tax credits, or historic tax credits. And that's great because it's a public-private partnership. It, it shows it's proving a need in a community, but it also helps to de-risk our investors' um, capital uh, investment into the project. So um, each project's a little unique, but we're, we're open to exploring them. Um, this fund is commercial real estate, but more to come on future funds, which will include other asset classes. Noel, I, I have to like toss out one little detail to add to the Sharswood Philly project. She mentioned capital stacks that in all my years in finance, it's probably my favorite capital stack. Not only did the OZ equity we put in through a great partnership with Shift Capital, Mosaic's the developer, just an all around incredible project. Uh, but in that capital stack, 
they did crowdfunding, 750,000 of crowdfunding from the local community. So as that project uh, returns to the investors, it's returning to investors right in the community. So phenomenal. And Noel, I, I, I don't know if you're at liberty to kind of talk about some of the projects in the pipeline that kind of continue that narrative, but I, you know, feel free to share some of the, some of the transformational work that's just lurking around the corner. Yeah, we do have some pretty um, incredible projects that we're looking at just in terms of what they, what they will do in these neighborhoods. So in the fifth ward in Houston, there's a mega church that uh, membership had gone down during COVID. So they're moving to a smaller campus, but fifth ward is an area in need of investment. Um, and the church was mindful about not just selling it to any developer. So they sold it to a local developer, black owned development firm, who through a joint venture with a group that has done large scale projects nationally, will be converting this old church, keeping the historic facade, but turning it into mixed income housing, a charter school and an early childhood education center. It's transit oriented. There's a bus stop right there. So residents can go to jobs in downtown Houston. Um, another project, the city of Baltimore gave 100 vacant row homes to a developer who we invested with in our first fund um, for $1. And he's looking at a model uh, for how to convert them. Um, right now they're vacant. So he's looking to rehab all of them and create affordable home ownership opportunities in one neighborhood in West Baltimore. So these are the types of projects that we're looking at. Um, again, they're under diligence, but I think it's helpful to be able to show our investors, you know, you're not investing into a blind pool from our first fund. We have a great group of developers um, who we either were able to invest with or were not. And we already have projects that are far underway in terms of the diligence process. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing how that unfolds over the coming months and, and years ahead. I uh, wanted to shift gears and talk about the counter narrative that I teased in the the intro. So one of the biggest criticisms of the Opportunity Zones tax policy is that it's merely a tax break for the already wealthy investors in this country. It's not actually delivering any positive impact in the communities that it was promised to deliver. Uh, Noel, I know you and Doug just visited Capitol Hill a few weeks ago with the Economic Innovation Group, EIG, and some other Opportunity Zone stakeholders. What's the positive impact story that you are telling to policymakers on Capitol Hill or, or other elected officials or anyone else who asks, how are Opportunity Zones having a positive impact in local communities? And maybe you can Tell us also about uh, those meetings on Capitol Hill and some takeaways. Yeah, we'd be happy to. Um, so we appreciate EIG and their leadership bringing together OZ stakeholders to talk to senators and their staffers. Um, one, you can tell we're enthused about opportunity zones, but I, I would not deny that there's opportunity for improvement. So I do think that the reform bill that's being visited now would help strengthen the program considerably. Um, it would get rid of those opportunity zones outside of low and moderate income areas that I spoke about earlier. Um, so essentially, you're narrowing it down to what would be more in line with what we see in the Community Reinvestment Act. Um, but it would also require some, some type of impact reporting, like our fund has uh, adopted willingly. Uh, it would require that of all investors. So 
our activity has been held up as a model for here's a counter narrative, here's how you can do it well and do it in a way that impacts communities. And I'm really passionate about impact investing. I think when I talk to people about impact investing, there's a lot of people with really big hearts, but they're still thinking in the two-pocket mindset, right? I'm going to make as much money as I can in, on the one side and then donate the excess on the other side. And so a really important point for us is that just because you're doing impact investing, that doesn't necessitate concessionary returns. Um, our fund is targeting a 12% IRR before the tax incentive, and then we know it is a great tax incentive. So I, I really think it's this understanding that can be a both and, but we can't throw out the impact integrity. We're very passionate about the fact that we found a way to operationalize the impact goals of our fund, and we'd encourage other Opportunity Zone investors to do that because these communities that are located in Opportunity Zones deserve that. They, they deserve um, the capital to be meeting needs because they have suffered from disinvestment for far too long. Um, but Doug also joined me in D.C., and I, I know it was an exciting couple of days of, of meeting, so I'm sure there's some he'd like to share that I, that I didn't mention. It was, it, it was nice to be asked to join um, because of the proof points that our work has given. And so it, while it's great to have the Forbes and the Sorensen and the BAI recognition, uh, really walk in the halls to thank Senators Booker and Scott for sponsoring the legislation. It was it was rewarding. And one particular moment, there was 30 of us in Senator Booker's office, and I had the chance to share the Charswood and share the, the Hotel St. James and, and a few others. And seeing the look on his face of how proud he was, I think, around the legislation, but there was a moment in particular, he's like, how come I don't know you? I said, I don't know. I live at exit five. Uh, so it was kind of fun that to talk to my own senator and, and thank him for doing this. But uh, he's he's completely supportive around the changes. And we just hope both sides of the aisle see it as benefiting every community that's out there, that these things are really transformational. And we can give you eight other eight other examples from our portfolio of 10 that are that are just remarkable. And uh, we're looking to add to that. We know there's a lot of other great demand out there. Alex Flax, Flaxbart uh, from Opportunity Alabama was was there with us that day. And when when he shared that those additional projects that are coming out in, in Selma because of that Hotel St. James, that that's just very, very rewarding to, to hear it. To see it actually be the catalyst that it was intended to be is just remarkable. So it was a great if day. I could add, I think there was one other piece that um, Doug and I failed to mention, but I know it's something we both feel very supportive of. In the reform bill, there's also um, something around creating a fund to fund structure. And we feel like this could be really impactful for getting more capital to opportunity zones and especially opportunity zones in rural and smaller areas. You know, our first fund was able to make investments one to three million dollars, but a lot, a lot of the large banks or wealth management firms, we're not going to be able to tap into that volume of capital and get it to small projects like that without the fund to fund structure. So I think it's just bringing more sophistication to the OZ industry. Um, and there's also funding for a community dynamism fund, which would allow local municipalities to either play as a convener, like Alex in Alabama that Doug mentioned, who connects investors to projects in Alabama, 
um, or technical assistance, because again, these can be quite complicated capital stacks. So being able to come alongside a developer or project sponsor with some technical assistance to get them capital ready, um, we think that Community Dynamism Fund could be a great improvement to the program as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've been advocating for support and passage of that reform bill uh, since it first hit the floor back in April earlier this year. And, and we have some great resources on our website uh, to learn more about that Opportunity Zone reform bill and all of the new things that it would kind of add to the Opportunity Zones program. Um, it will, I'll, I'll make sure I link to those on the show notes for today's episode at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. Uh, Doug, I wanted to turn back to you and, and kind of revisit uh, one topic that you brought up a few moments ago. Uh, question is, why haven't Opportunity Zones become more institutionalized? I think the expectation early on was that some of the biggest investment banks in the world, Wall Street banks, we won't name any names, but you can probably a, pop, a few of them are popping into your head right now. Why aren't these banks paying more attention to Opportunity Zones? Why aren't they funding more Opportunity Zone investment? Simply put, I think headline risk. It would be, that's the, and that's why we're out there trying to change the narrative because the impact that's not being done because capital sitting on the sidelines and there is an abundant amount of capital sitting on the sidelines. It's, it's interesting. I was walking the floor yesterday of the AFP conference, the association for finance professionals where a lot of treasurers go and it's a difficult conversation uh, it to pierce through the resistance of they just haven't educated themselves on what opportunity zones could be and how it could fit a portfolio need that they have uh, on a business level or at a personal level it's once you get through it then the ahas start but it it's it's a little tricky to get through it the banks we've seen that have done it typically are just doing it as a courtesy for a client that may have a capital gain. Uh, Noel can tell you we've invested in OZ funds without capital gains. They're that strong of an investment for us. And we see, we see more need than capital right now, and which is why we're, we've set up Alivate to just help banks get through their process of, you know, whatever uh, preconceived notion they have on the merits of the economics alone, these deals paper. And it you just have the added benefit of OZs, uh, the tax incentives at the end. Uh, so we're, we're on a mission to change that narrative. We, we love the changes that you're, and thank you for your support on the amendments uh, that we hope to see passed by, by year end. But uh, we're happy to talk to any bank that has any questions about this. We're happy to talk to individuals too. But for me, I think every treasurer out there of every, any company should be looking at these investments as a really great opportunity uh, to, to extend the tenors of their balance sheet investments. So good. No, good insight there. Um, Noel, maybe you can kind of round out the interview here. We're, we're, we're coming down to the wire almost out of time. Uh, but yeah, I, I guess we're, what are we? We're, we're nearly five years in to when the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was passed at the end of 
2017 and about four and a half years removed from when the zones were first designated in July of 2018. But there does still still seem to be headline risk, as Doug termed it. Uh, and, and, and I would say, in addition to that, there's a knowledge gap with um, investors, retail investors, high net worth accredited investors, advisors, family offices, but also these large, um, very sophisticated banks have a knowledge gap as well, I, I feel. Well, what, Noel, just to kind of round out the interview here, what, what, how can we address that knowledge gap? What should investors ultimately know about the OZ program and any other parting thoughts you may have? Well, thank you, Jimmy. I feel like you're doing a great job filling that knowledge gap. So appreciate what you're doing here on the podcast. Um, but you know, for us, I think just stressing to investors that the tax incentive is wonderful and it's the icing on the cake, right? The, the tax incentive won't make a bad investment a good investment. It'll make a good investment great. So for us, the types of projects we're looking at um, have strong predicted financial returns. We've talked about the impact that can be achieved in communities um, and then the added tax incentive. So for um, investors with capital gains, we'd love to hear from you. I think early on, it was a lot of concentration risk because it was easier to do a single asset investment, um, a single investor, single asset. The uh, Opportunity Zone industry has matured since then. We've been there since the start. So to be able to offer to investors a multi-asset, multi-investor fund, you know, there's not as much concentration risk. We have uh, relationships across the country where we're tapping into quality projects. So we'd love to hear from investors who are interested. We'd also love to hear from developers if you think you have a, a strong project that's going to be catalytic in, in your community. We'd love to connect with you because we're actively raising capital, but we're also actively building our pipeline to deploy that capital. Very good. So if, uh, if any of our listeners or viewers today are a developer with a project that, that you might find interesting, or maybe they're an accredited investor with uh, capital gain who might be interested in learning more about the investment opportunity with Elevate Impact Capital. Where can they go to learn more about you and get in, in touch with you? So we're available at Elevate.com if you'd like to learn more. We'd also encourage you to follow us on LinkedIn at Elevate Impact Capital, um, or you could email me, Noel at Elevate.com. We would love to connect with you and talk about how we could collaborate in Opportunity Zone. And that's Elevate.com, A-L-L-I-V-A-T-E.com. Is that right? That's right. You got it. Very good. Uh, well, also for my listeners and viewers out there today, I will, of course, have show notes available for today's episode at OpportunityDB.com slash podcast. And there we'll have links to all of the resources that Noel, Doug, and I discussed on today's episode. And please also be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast listening platform to always get the latest from Opportunity DB. Noel, Doug, it's been a pleasure speaking to you today. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having us, Jimmy. Great work. Thank you. Take care. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by Opportunity DB. You can access our show notes by visiting opportunitydb.com forward slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. 